my real ambition uh, relative to work was probably being a school teacher. I mean, that's kind of what I thought I would end up as. And the only time I questioned that was the thought that I might open up a music store. Conversations with Sarah, a podcast where you get to listen in on some of my most interesting and personal conversations. I'm Sarah Samuel, and today we're talking about work. Last week, I spoke with my mom, which was insightful for me. I got to hear how she relates to work and career and success and hear that we have a lot of the same insecurities about what I do for work, comparing the success and stability of others to that of myself. We talked a little bit about my early life as it related to work and education, and I became aware of this deep sense of failure I've had about never finding the one thing that makes me feel passionate and happy that I could translate into work. But my mom also reminded me to stop reducing myself to my work title and to what I do and to start focusing more on who I am as a person and the many other ways in which I contribute to this world, as well as the other things that are valuable to my life, such as relationships and curiosity and creativity. This week, I'm talking to my dad, Mark Samuel. I think my whole life I've looked to him as an example of what career should be. He owns his own corporate consulting business, and his work has been his life for over 30 years. I've often compared myself to him, wondering why I haven't found my thing the way that he's found his. So I wanted to find out what has his experience of work actually been, What is his idea of success, and does it match the one I've been struggling to free myself from? I've often thought that maybe I've been trying to live up to his standard of success rather than my own. The following conversation is fascinating and revealing, and only the first part of the conversation, because we talked for three hours. Okay, so I wanted to talk to you about work. Okay. I guess I have like a few different places that I want to to start from. So I guess I'll just start with like, what was your, I guess like growing up, what was your idea of like what you wanted to do and what you wanted to be when you grew up? And also like, what was your idea of success and like the expectations surrounding that either like from your parents or just like that you had from yourself? Yeah, I mean, I either had an idealistic view of work or I had a, what I'll call practical view from growing up. And what I mean by that is the idealistic view was, you know, if I could be, since I played in a band, and so I had the ambition that we could become rock stars. Mm -hmm. Or since I pitched, I had the ambition to be a professional baseball player because I loved doing both of those things. So I thought, wow, that would be, you know, it'd be great to make a lot of money doing both of those things. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, my real ambition uh, relative to work was probably being a school teacher. I mean, that's kind of what I thought I would end up as. And the only time I questioned that was um, the thought that I might open up a music store because of the band experience and because of my experience uh, buying musical instruments at a particular music shop. It was called Whitaker Music in Long Beach. And 
there was a guy named Kenny Robinson and he would always give me deals and, you know, I'd always see him privately and get just about any, any equipment I wanted. He, he supplied all the schools, you know, in, in Long Beach with their musical instruments. Yeah. And he didn't own the shop, but it was, it was really the only other idea. So it was either going to be, you know, a school teacher, most, most likely high school or a, uh, opening up a music store. And so my idea of success, and I was, you know, I actually had a pretty clear idea about it again, if I wasn't going to be a rock star or going to be a baseball professional player was I'd be a school teacher teaching probably math and I would be living in a suburb and have choices about my summers. And I figured I would be, you know, to make extra money, I would be in a wedding bar mitzvah kind of band and loving that and then I would be uh, coaching Little League or some level of baseball in the summers. Mm-hmm. It was all planned out actually. So then what where did everything go wrong? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well actually first to kind of slow it down, um did you have a sense of like what your parents is this, like, it's, it kind of sounds like everything that you wanted to do just stemmed from, like, things that you were in life and you were experiencing things and you liked those things and you thought, I would like to continue doing these things and I need to make money someday. And so, like, hopefully those things can correlate. Yeah, I mean, I ha- I knew, I started teaching drums when I was 15. Okay. So, and literally my parents drove me to my students' houses <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, I would do a lesson and then they'd come pick me up kind yeah. of thing. It was like really weird for for a year until yeah. I could drive. But the point was is that I knew I had a natural skill for teaching. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was like a no-brainer in terms of, you know, a profession right. where I could teach and it was easy for me and I was good at it. And mm-hmm. so I, I never really thought about anything else. Mm-hmm. And and do you feel like your, I guess I'm asking like, do you feel like your ideas of success and things kind of, it seems like it, what I'm saying is like it seems like it came more from your own experience and just things that you liked and kind of the there was like a very practical element to all of it. It wasn't um, as opposed to having an idea of like your mother or your father think that like doing X career or making X amount of money would make you successful and you learned, you know what I mean? There's like a certain practical element and there's a certain men, uh, like a me- mental image element. It sounds like you were much more practical. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I'd say it's a combination of both, but, but well, you'd have to also understand that my dad, for the first 10 years of my life, when I lived in Los Angeles, my dad had a TV repair shop mm-hmm. and struggled. Like it mm-hmm. never okay. worked. Yeah. And they were always um, stressed about money for the first 10 years of my life. Mm-hmm. And not full 10, but, you know, like when I was eight or nine, he got his high school diploma. Okay. And um, then went on to college and then became an engineer at McDonnell Douglas. 
So that was the first time he had a salary, pension, you know, m- medical, all the things that come with a steady job. Mm-hmm. That's when we moved into a house mm-hmm. and really upgraded our lifestyle. So my view of success was that steady job, you know, uh, vacation times, mm-hmm. sick time. Uh, pension when you're done, you know, medicals covered. I mean, that was that was glorious compared to what we were, how we were living when he owned a business. Mm, that's so, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, um, so for me, being a school teacher that has a steady income, where I knowing that it's not going to be a great income, but it's going to be okay. But knowing that I could make extra money in a band mm-hmm. said, okay, that's that's great. And yeah. it's it was it's something I love doing and it's effortless for me to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's teaching was like the most natural thing yeah. that I could do. I didn't have to learn how to teach. I was born knowing how to teach. Yeah. So and that was demonstrated not only when I was younger teaching drums, but when I got into college and I was teaching statistics, I was actually tutoring, but I was so popular as a tutor, I'd have classes of 30 kids, oh, really? 30 students, and I'd Dang. literally be running, the cl- running a class and people were, you know, unfortunately not going to the professor's class oh. that just come to mind because wow. it was, they, you know, they, they felt you know, it was that they were getting the education and, and all of my students did well. And so I knew, you know, like, again, I didn't have to study it. And then when I went to get my teaching credential, you know, it was like, I, like, I didn't have to work. I had to learn some things because mm-hmm. I didn't know how to use uh, some of the machinery or, you know, overhead projectors in those mm-hmm. days and stuff like that. But besides the technical stuff, I, it was nothing. Like, I could teach without ever studying like it was yeah and all the other students i knew that it was different because all the other students were freaked out and stressed and they're gonna have to present in front of the class and i'm like okay this is like (laughs) nothing like i could do this in my sleep yeah it's just the easiest most natural thing in the world for you so my assumption was easily that that was going to be my career that makes a lot of sense um And, you know, having the model of being very satisfied with a very moderate, you know, you know, uh, middle income home, like we weren't in the rich neighborhood, weren't in the poorest either, but, you know, kind of okay. Yeah. But nothing to write home about. That was, for me, that was great. Mm Mm-hmm. That was it. I mean, I had a very, as someone told me recently when I was sharing that, part of the story is that I had a very small view of life at that time. Very like, I feel like classic suburban. Yeah. um, Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think there's like a number of things about that that are really interesting just in comparing it to my own life and my own experience like growing up um which I guess like 
I kind of want to get into a little bit later. I want to like continue with your story of how you <laughs> got away from all of that. <laughs> not all of that, really, but um, most of it. All of the details of it, not the obviously you're a teacher, so right. That that part is. Well, it wasn't. So what happened? What happened was I was teaching a class on uh, of, of general math kids mm -hmm. in high school. Mm -hmm. They came in not knowing how to multiply or divide. Mm -hmm. Some didn't know how to add or subtract. So we're talking about really low level in high school, which yeah. quite honestly at the time I was actually shocked. Like yeah. I couldn't imagine that that would ever be true, but it was. And the, the school system had an individualized study program for kids to get better at that. And there was a point where the students started to get to a module pretty advanced, but it was at that time all learning the metric system. And to be able to change from our system to the metric system, really, if you want to, if you get beyond the formula of it, is really basic algebra. So I had the bright idea to, if they could do that, to why not teach them more algebra? So I did. And I created a, I created a, um, a program where I would teach one student or two students something in algebra and then when someone else got to that part of the module i'd have the two students teach the next students okay. and those students would teach the next students and i created a chain where i used the students as teachers and had them learning you know algebra and by the time we got to the end of the program or end of the school year rather um, I asked the students, because I just kept giving them harder and harder material, but I didn't use a book. And I asked the students if they were planning to sign up for algebra, and they go, no, we're general math students. We can't do algebra. And so I said, well, let me show you something. So I went to a book for the first time, that an algebra book that was on the bookshelves, open it up, and I didn't even know this, but I looked through what I had been giving them, and it took them all the way through fifth chapter of Algebra wow. 1. And, of course, they didn't believe me, so I said, <laughs> look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to check out the book for a week, come back to me in a week, but look through up to Chapter 5 and tell me if you know how to do that, those problems. And, of course... They came back and said, we can do this. Like, I can do this. I said, great, sign up for algebra because you're already five chapters into a program that's going to actually start yeah. at that level. And um, the management of the school wouldn't let them enroll in algebra. What? Because they're general math kids. Well, and they didn't complete the metric section mm -hmm. of the module of right. this individualized general math book. 
So none of them were allowed. And I went and complained to the principal. I said, that is absurd. Like, this is terrible. Like, I got these students over the fear of math, got them to believe in themselves, (gasps) got them skilled. And he said, well, you shouldn't have done that. You know, it's like, that's, you, you didn't follow the rules in the program. Oh, God. That, like, makes me want to cry. I did for three days. It was, I was absolutely heartbroken. Like, I was devastated. Literally, because the for me at that point in my life, the only reason to be a teacher is to help kids get over over whatever fear is blocking them from being successful. Mm -hmm. When I was teaching statistics at the college, at the university at UCI, tutoring, most of the students had failed math in some place. And in those days, a good portion of the students were women who were even told because they were women not to take math Mm -hmm. or that they didn't need math or that they were naturally not going to be good at math. Like there was so much stereotype with women. It again, shocked me. But there wasn't any of those students who had these horror stories that didn't believe they could do it, that didn't get B's or A's in the class. Mm -hmm. So that's when my whole concept of education turned towards the idea that we have to we have to overcome our beliefs, our fears, and our limited beliefs, basically, that we put on ourselves that aren't true, but we picked up along the way. And here it was, we did that for these, you know, high school students that then get completely... We're blocked by politics, basically. Right. But politics, bureaucracy, rules, whatever it is. Yeah. And I just knew at that point, I can't be a teacher. And I I literally, I just, it was like, it was so shocking to me because I had my whole life planned. Yeah. You know. How old were you at that point? About? 22. Jesus. Okay. 21, 22. And that's when I enrolled into business school. Okay. Because I, I believed, and I was thinking marketing, advertising, that I didn't have to care if I went into business because I, I realized I care too much about teaching. Mm. I care way too much. I mean, if I'm going to cry for three days because of, you know, what is, is the, the system, yeah. I, I don't want to be in a career where I have to care that much. So yeah. I'll, I'll go into business because, you know, it's like, okay, whatever. Yeah. And that's what got me into enrolling to UCI in their management school. So, okay, what happened in business school? Well, in business school, again, my, my, my focus was to go into marketing. Um, and interestingly enough, at UC Irvine, they didn't offer marketing. Mm. So I took uh, my marketing courses at UCLA, okay. which is a whole nother experience. But while I was at UC Irvine, I got... I enrolled into organization development, which I had never heard of. Mm-hmm. And I always had an interest in psychology, but never pursued it because I didn't like the curriculum in colleges around psychology, which was, you know, studying animals or mm-hmm. theoretical psychology, right. any of that stuff. And so organization development was really the study of psychology 
related to people in the working world. Mm -hmm. And I just loved it. It was systemic. It was comprehensive. It was, uh, I love the, the professor was outstanding and a, and a consultant. So he was practical, not just a theorist, mm -hmm. but definitely one of the forerunners of organization development, which had only started in the 50s, 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was there with them. Wow. When it was started. So it was a very unique opportunity. And he was viewed as one of the, on the inner circle. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I just absolutely loved it. And that's when everything shifted towards the work that I'm, I'm actually doing now. And then, okay, so did you start off thinking like, okay, now that I'm going to be consultant, I will own my own business? Or did you want to work for another consulting company? Or like, how did that all shake out? No, basically, I wanted to get a job in some corporation, again, similar to my dad. Right, right. Because you probably were thinking like, I don't want to own my own business. I mean, was that in your mind at all? Like that it's not really the best? I didn't think of it that okay. way. Like, I didn't even think it was a possibility. Okay. You know, there were a couple of consult. There was a consulting firm that I was um, open to. Like, I interviewed with them and to become part of their team. And they were very, like, a process-oriented consulting group. Um, and I wasn't sure about that. Um, but But otherwise, I was thinking much more of a... Um, at the time, like, um, like just a major corporation that, you know, like an IBM or. Okay. They have like in-house consultants and stuff kind of. Yeah. But I, I don't even know that I was, I don't even know that I would, that it would be an in-house consultant. I was open to just about anything that was in their realm. Like it wasn't oh, okay. like it could have been an account manager. It could have been. Okay. On the management team or just, oh, their just basic... doing anything in a corporation. Yeah. Not necessarily being right. um, a consulting firm. Right. I had done, okay, I see. like I had done an internship uh, uh, with a marketing project where I did marketing research. Mm -hmm. I did another um, internship for a hospital that was studying their, uh, to do a statistical study for their uh, employees. Mm -hmm. So I, I was pretty open to doing anything. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the least was thinking of was was consulting. Okay. Which. So then, <laughs> <laughs> so then how did you get into that? Well, um, I, um, I I was actually on a retreat that. And you happen to know my best friend, Chip, that <laughs> you time. You happen to know him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, um, he decided to have a retreat, to run a retreat um, up in Arrowhead. Um, and this is so typical, Chip. Um, and I said, well, what's the focus of our retreat? He says, we're going to think about thinking. <laughs> and I honestly thought that was pretty dumb because... <laughs> A, I'm not very academic, and I thought the purpose of going to Arrowhead would be boating, camping, <laughs> hiking. Wrong, wrong. Doing wrong. anything fun, but not more schoolwork. Because, <laughs> again, I wasn't really the academic type, and, and he invited two other friends. 
uh, besides me, which well, they were both uh, older than us and in the working world. One owned an uh, architect design company and the other one ran uh, two, I believe, 7-Eleven stores, but was originally uh, working for Texaco and had 11 promotions in 13 years and was working for the CEO. Wow. So he was like super high level thinker. I kind of feel like my mom worked for Texaco. Is that true? Not that I remember. Okay, <laughs> never mind. Um, <laughs> I think she worked for USA. Oh, okay. Um, petroleum. But in any case, so we were all getting together and at some point talking about careers. And the three of them all told me, because we, we hadn't quite graduated yet, they said that they thought I should become a consultant and be independent. And I'm like looking at them going, you guys are crazy. <laughs> and part of that was they couldn't see me in a large company. And it was interesting to me that they all said that because my mentor at the time, a guy named Charlie Brotman, who uh, wasn't very much an entrepreneur and very bright, just a very eccentric guy to say the least. But he also gave me that same advice. He said, I don't see you in a corporation. I see you doing your own thing. And I thought he was crazy and now I'm thinking they're crazy, but I am getting the same message. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, I don't know the first thing about starting a consulting business, not the first thing. I said, the only way I would do this if you guys did it with me. Hmm. And so uh, two of them, of the three, two of them did. And we formed a consulting partnership. That's how I got into consulting. Because there was no way I would have done it on my own. And yeah. I looked at myself as the kid in the group. Mm -hmm. A, I was the youngest, but also they were much more experienced in yeah. different aspects of organization and sales and mm -hmm. marketing and setting up a business and doing all the stuff that mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I'm I'm on for the ride to yeah. check it out. But Yeah. Mm -hmm. So were you doing consult – like was everyone doing consulting or were you doing consulting and they were kind of like managing the rest no, of the everyone business? did consulting. Okay. Yeah, we all did it. And then did you learn how to like start a business or did you – did they kind of set most well, of Well, I up? learned everything. Like, I learned how to be a consultant for the kind of work right. they were doing because it, okay. it was a whole – we were doing workflow analysis. I never did that before, but one of them knew how to do it, so they taught me. Yeah. Um, Chip knew how to run do proposals because design firms use proposals, so we could do mm -hmm. top-notch proposals, which mm -hmm. most consultants wouldn't know how to do. And um, And the other partner knew how to set up the business. So, yeah, they all did most of that setting up. I did the consulting, and then I also did some of the sales because that's something that mm -hmm. I had been familiar with because I did that for the band oh, that okay. I was in. So did that business become Impact, or did Impact it was, start separately? So basically, we called ourselves the Consultant Collaborative, mm -hmm. TCC for short. And we had a full strategy about how we were going to grow, and we were carrying that out. And in 1983, about end of 82, beginning of 83, 
one of the partners decided to get a permanent job, sell the two 7-Elevens and get a permanent job with one of our clients. And then Chip decided to leave the consulting firm and uh, get his PhD. And I was left with a consulting business, <laughs> never wanting to be alone doing it myself. <laughs> yeah. And here I am now, well, what do I do now? I've got this business, do I keep going or not? And, and um, the only thing that happened coincidentally or synchronistically at that time was that's also when I started my spiritual quest. Mm. So 1983 was a key time. They left. I'm stuck with this business. I don't really yeah. know what to do with. And the um, and I start my spiritual practice, which then opened up a lot of doors and windows that I had never planned to go and go down. It's funny that you said that because as you were kind of just saying this last piece about just that you were stuck with this consulting business now, I was kind of thinking, well, I'm curious to know, like the, I'm curious to know the, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, correlation, I guess, between, I mean, I guess the question is like, what do you feel like work is such a big part of your life has been a really big, at least as far as like I have experienced. Sure. Like I always feel like, have felt like you have your business and that's sort of like your most important thing. And like you've had, you've been married three times. Every single person has worked for your business. Like there's a lot that's just like around your business and your life. Um, and I think I don't really want to talk about myself just yet, but, <laughs> I, <laughs> but um, I think that your kind of, um, it has felt to me that your sort of identity and sort of your purpose in this world is about like work and the work that you're doing, which feels like a very spiritual thing to me. And I feel like I have always thought for myself that it would be my work and my career that would be sort of like the thing that would define me and be sort of my identity and um, be kind of the most important thing to me, I think possibly because I watched you do, like, I don't really know exactly where that has come from. And that's something that I've questioned a lot and tried to kind of get to the bottom of. But um, so it's interesting to like hear your story of kind of how that all uh, has unfolded <laughs> for you in this kind of sort of very easy and natural, not to say that it was always easy, but like no. a very natural way, I guess. Or it felt, it seems like it was very organic. It doesn't sound like you were ever a lot in a state of like, what do I do and should I do this? And I need to like try all these things and I'm hitting a wall, you know what I mean? Like, it seems like everything sort of was like doors opening. Yes, but not as I had planned. Right. So yes, I never had to quote unquote struggle to say, what should I do in my life? Mm -hmm. And I always had other things I could fall back on, but the hardest thing actually came at this juncture because right. the one piece I didn't share was my goal of being a consultant was only to do what I was taught to do really well with high integrity. 
-hmm. That's it. I was not a creator. I was not an innovator. I didn't view myself that way at all. Um, I wasn't any kind of a designer. So as an example, I looked at Chip, my partner, as he took classes in uh, how do you create models mm -hmm. and organizational concepts. Uh, I never even thought about that. I never even took a class on it. I had no interest, no mm -hmm. view that I had that would have that kind of skill. So the, the challenge came when um, I had a client in which I did some team building work for, came back to follow up, was getting all sorts of accolades on how well the team building went mm -hmm. based on how people grew individually. Mm -hmm. And then when I asked about how the team was doing, oh, the response was, we're still dysfunctional, but we all love the program. <laughs> and my view of, of the world at that time was, A, that was a failure. Mm -hmm. And B, if I can't be good at this, I need to change careers. Mm. So 1983 became a, a real turning point for me in the sense that they both, my partners left. I have this experience. I'm either going to figure this out within a year or I'm changing careers. Very similar to changing careers when I was a high school teacher mm -hmm. and then saying, no, now I'm going a different direction. Yeah. I was that absolute about it because my consciousness at the time was very categorical and, and, and um, compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. So, and if I couldn't be su successful the way I viewed it, then I, w then I felt like I needed to go do something different. Yeah. Where did that view of success come from? Sorry. I think it, it followed me along the way. It's like if I couldn't be successful in the band, I'm not going to stay a musician. If I'm not going to be successful as a ball player, I'm not going to But what did you, stay, what you was know. your idea of like what success meant? Like how would you measure to know whether or not you were successful? I guess. Mm. Kind of being the best, like at the highest level. Like, okay. Professional musician, professional ball player, you know, yeah. like I knew as a in high school, my students did great. Yeah. You know, my I, I had that even as a um, teaching drums. Mm -hmm. I promised every student they would be first or second chair in their band. Promised. <laughs> and the only reason they'd be second chair is because I had another student that was first chair. <laughs> so I had a lot of arrogance, arrogance. about yeah. that. <laughs> no, but I also, you but know. But you felt like it was true and honest. And, oh, it was yeah. it was true and yeah. honest. There wasn't anybody I had that wasn't first or second chair. Yeah. I just knew how to develop kids to get to that level. That's why I said teaching was never my issue. Right. Even when I did substitute teaching, where I would be asked to go into a class that was teach learning Spanish. Mm -hmm. I don't speak Spanish. And I had a, a teacher assistant there. And I quickly saw that there were two, this was in junior high, middle school, there were two groups of people. One were Mexican-Americans, one were white. They didn't mix. Mm -hmm. And not knowing... Like, I can't run a lesson plan mm -hmm. not speaking Spanish. Right. 
So what I decided to do is give them homework to do, but I mixed them. And I had the Mexican-Americans who were Spanish-speaking be the coaches or teachers or mentors of the white kids in class and got them all together, mm-hmm. which they had never done before. Mm-hmm. And the class was amazing. Like, people were all engaged. They were all working. They were all having fun. And the teacher's aide said, these kids got more today than what they get from their normal teacher. And that, so I, I've had a history of no matter where I go, yeah. being able to get groups to learn yeah. and to study at, at different ages. I never could do much below third grade or third grade or below, but I even had a group, you know, in a Jewish school, fourth grade class that was completely out of control. I was there to substitute teach, but the class was out of control. The principal warned me. Like this group, like you can't do anything with them. <laughs> and he comes by, walking by the room to see how things are going. All the kids are quiet. They're all <laughs> studying. They're all in their desks. And he's looking in the room and, you know, wondering what the heck did I do to create that? Mm-hmm. And then he comes back later, same thing. Like they're all engaged this time, but they're all participating. No one's unruly. And I'll never forget what he told me at the end. He said, you are either one hell of a great teacher or you are one great manipulator. (laughs) And I thought for a moment, I go, yeah, that's probably true. It's an (laughs) and. (laughs) You know, because I set up a reward system for the kids to compete for who wins the award. Mm. Except there was no prize. (laughs) But no one cared. Yeah. But it's like understanding what's the psychology behind it and what motivates and, you know, just how do people have fun learning. Yeah. And I always got blamed when I was teaching high school math because my kids were always too loud because I would have games and contests Mm -hmm. for people to using math. And so it would get loud and it would disturb the other teachers. I didn't care. My students are going to do great. Yeah. So I, I had that kind of confidence around teaching. Yeah. Okay. So, but as soon as that went away, then I went to business. And then uh, now I'm saying, if I can't be a better consultant, I'm going to get out of this too. Did you feel like consulting was like similar to teaching? Yeah. Or parts of it why were. would you think that you were not good? Or like parts it, of it, it stumped were. you that. Parts of it. See, okay. I wasn't yet doing that much training. I mean, I was doing some training and some mm-hmm. team building. But team building isn't like like teaching. It's getting a group to, I mean, there's education in it. And there's some obviously platform in front of a group skill. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot more to it. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly the same. Now, I viewed more of my training programs as similar to my teaching. But team building is a whole different skill base. There can be very good trainers who are terrible at team building. Mm -hmm. And there could be good team builders who are terrible at training, at delivering training. Okay. So they're not quite the same. Okay. Yeah. So then you were kind of stumped on the team building part? Or like what was the problem with the the group that didn't get it? Or the group that they they loved the program but we're still fighting or whatever. I I didn't know. So I went and studied. That was my commitment for the year. I'm going to study all the groups that that I'd worked with 
to find out what went wrong, when did it go wrong, okay. and and yeah. start to see if I couldn't find some patterns. Right. And and then once I found the pattern, I'd implement it again. And instead of it lasting three months, it was now lasting six months. Mm-hmm. Well, that was good, but it was still breaking down. So then I looked at what was happening then. Okay. And then I, you know, again, through interviews and finding out, through analysis, found out what was breaking down to get it to last three quarters of a year. And my goal was to get it to last a year on its own. Okay. So it took about two years. Oh, okay. Until that whole system. Like, and so the fact that you were getting some kind of, it was getting a little bit better. You were figuring things out, kept you. Because you said, I'll give yes, this a year. I'll but you had some success. So that kind of right. kept you. That kept in, me going. Yeah. Right. Because I was starting to get it. Yeah. And once I had it, once I had the system created, then, you know, and I looked at it not as creating a new system. Again, my mindset at the time was I'm just solving the breakdown, Mm -hmm. but I'm using the same system Mm -hmm. that I was taught in school, but just with minor modifications until I responded to a request for proposal for team building. Mm And I showed them the new system, and the person that I interviewed with said, this looks really good, but it's not team building. And I go, what do you mean it's not team building? (laughs) Team building is the only thing I know how to do. Of course it's team building. No, it's not team building. I've gotten five, six other proposals. None of them look the same. Look like what you've got. You're doing something different. It's just not team building. And I, like, it really crushed me. Like, it was like, not, like, it was like this whole, um... I don't know what you, cognitive dissonance. Right, yeah. So what I decided to do is go back to my professor Mm -hmm. because I was still close with him and I was only recently out of school, recently, you know, like five, six, seven years, but um, seven years, but I knew him still very well and he was still at the the university. So I, I showed him what my modifications to what he taught me. Right which was just, you know, solving these little problems. And I showed it to him. I said, now, isn't this the same as what you taught us? And he looks through the book and goes, no, I've never seen any of this before. (laughs) Which then just really threw me. Yeah. Because, A, I wasn't, that was never my skill set. That was Chip's skill set. That was our other partner's skill set. But I wasn't there to create anything new. Mm -hmm. Nor did I believe I had done that. I was very convinced that I had just like tweaked yeah. whatever it was to get the be- a better result. And so I was now left with, you know, kind of in 1985, two years after 83, you know, going through all this with, wow, I've created something. I know it's really good, but th- it really started to redefine who I was. Mm-hmm. Then what happened was combine that with the spiritual movement and practice that I started. And now all of a sudden I'm starting to get um, new models and new messages coming to me to solve problems that, uh, again, was taking me way out of my construct of who I was, mm-hmm. what my identity would be, mm-hmm. etc. And it never stopped. In fact, at one point I even I even, you know, I was creating so much and I was getting so many downloads 
that I just said, okay, I'm, I'm tired of this. Like, I can't make money at this. Like, it's too, you know, even the system that I created, people didn't believe that I, it could work. Right. Because it didn't look like everything else. Mm-hmm. And so I just told, you know, kind of my prayer to God was, I, I'm, I'm done. I don't want to create anything more. Stop. <laughs> Stop. This is crazy. Yeah. You know, you're giving me, me stuff I can't do anything with. And I didn't hear a response, so I thought, hmm. I think it worked because I was really it felt so responsible and so like this is taking me on a course that I can't like it's just it's running me basically and so it was quiet for about two weeks and then I went into meditation and a whole new model came (laughs) I was like hello (laughs) and and I knew at that point that well this is you know futile it's this isn't going to stop. Yeah. Like it's, it's now got me. Yeah. So that's why. Otherwise, I don't think I, I never intended my career to be so close to my identity or to be so involved in it. Yeah. My thing was a school teacher. Right. You know, get yeah. school ends at three thirty. Right. It's not this work till seven or eight at night. And because I was so good at it, I didn't have a lot of homework. Like I didn't have to spend nights. Like think of lesson you know, plans and things. Lesson like that. plans and all that stuff. I hardly ever yeah. did a lesson plan. Like yeah. I just didn't need to do that, you know. And when your mom was become was a yeah. teacher and stuff, I'd be coaching her because she'd work so hard, she hard. so hard. And I go, no, 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 no. You don't. You don't have to work so hard. Like you can make this yeah. a lot easier and still be effective. Yeah. But I said you can't get your. You can't you can't get your gratification from how they respond. Yeah. See, I never had that as an issue. Mm-hmm. I I knew my separation from them for the most part, mm-hmm. and I trusted myself, and I knew what I needed to get done. Yeah. So, excuse me, but the so in essence, once the spiritual and the work combined, and all this new models and concepts mm-hmm. and viewpoints, and you know everything around accountability as I was doing, it started to come into play. The business owned me. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was literally a spiritual quest at that point mm-hmm. to, to learn and, and, and understand more and more about how people work mm-hmm. and how things function. And, and that's, you know, and it was a struggle because I really wasn't a very good businessman per se. And I wasn't a great at sales and marketing. I was good at creating this work and literally listening and getting the work downloaded to do what I do and get good results. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's why it became such a an all-encompassing mission To which, you know, you mentioned being married three times and everyone being involved in the business. Well, they were all enamored with the work. Yeah. I mean, it was very cool work. Yeah. So, um, you know, and um, for some, an opportunity to use whatever skill they had to to contribute to it. So that's really what it, it became more of a mission. But understand, I never wanted it to be a mission. And I had many, a lot of anger with, with God for many decades because I was still wedded to the suburban house right. with security, stable mm-hmm. income, 
and now I'm traveling the world. Yeah. I never had a vision of traveling the world. Like, that was not... <laughs> Part of the... That was never <laughs> in my... Oh, I can't wait to travel the world. No, I didn't even... That was never a thing for me. Yeah. Didn't want to write books. It's oh, yeah. the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> like, you, you, honestly, if you would have told me when I got into business that I'd be writing books, I would have laughed in your face, as I did when one of my professors asked if I would continue on to the PhD program. And I said, it's me you're talking to. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> that wouldn't be me because I'm not that academic. I'm yeah. not going to be writing some thesis paper. Like, yeah. you got to be kidding me. So for me, I had yeah. an identity crisis for right. years, literally up until, you know, you could ask, you can ask self this, but, you know, really up until about 15 years, five years before we divorced is when I started to come to terms with it. Mm. Literally just started. I, I, otherwise, I was a frustrated high school teacher. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, so it's like I just I wasn't yeah, prepared to live as big a life as what I am now leading mm -hmm. or living. Because it was never my dream to do that. Mm -hmm. Not that I didn't have fantasies of, all, you know, like I said, being a rock star, being a famous yeah. for something that I did. But it wasn't going to be that. I just wanted to meld in with everybody else, mm -hmm. do what I did well. Just live your quiet life. Live my little quiet life. And then every once in a while, I'll go to a bat mitzvah <laughs> and play music. Right. <laughs> um, dang. Okay. I think it's funny that you keep saying that you're not an academic, but you're a teacher. <laughs> well, yeah. And the difference is, for me, the an academic is the one who goes for the PhD, mm. the one who researches and does articles and... Okay. Um, like if you become a professor at a university, you have to do research. Mm -hmm. You're required to publish papers right. and to write books. But any other level of teaching, you never have to do that. Even community college or uh, even some levels of state college, you don't have to actually do research right. or any of that. So for me, the academic is the study of, okay. whereas teaching is the, is the embodying Mm. Or delivering oh, too. Interesting. Yeah. Now academics have to do both, right. but they actually don't. Most of them don't like teaching. They love the research part. Okay. okay. And okay. some don't actually teach. You know, they get other people to teach for them. Yeah. They're teaching right, assistants right, right, right. to teach for them while they are actually doing the research and getting mm -hmm. published and getting known. Yeah. Speaking at conferences. That's to me the academic world. I don't consider teaching high school the academic world. That's for people who, you know, want to impart knowledge to kids. Oh, I've never, I've never thought of the difference between that. I've always just been like school, academia. But I right. see what you're saying. It's like the philosophy and the study of and the theory of and yeah. versus the practical, the imparting knowledge, the doing of the thing. Um. That's interesting. Okay. Which is why, yeah. you know, I get, went back to that quick story around someone asking me to 
sorry, <laughs> someone asking me to, you know, go on to a PhD and thinking, yeah, you like, got to be kidding me. Like, yeah. but here, basically, yeah, like with the body of work I've created, I might as well right. have done a PhD, if not multiples of them. Right. All sorts of stuff. But you did that while doing, not while researching. Correct. And that, and that to me is really a big part of, a big part of it is that I've always viewed myself as a practitioner, not a theorist. And it's just that I need to find a way to communicate or explain mm -hmm. that which I'm learning as a practitioner. Right. That's where everything comes from. Right. But I never, I mean, the, for me, the desire to like, let's sit and let's think about thinking. <laughs> That to me was Chip's world and yeah. always was Chip's world. Yeah. You know, and my other partner was somewhat similar to that, but a little bit more practical because he was a businessman. Yeah. Uh, and I was the follower. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back to like breaking down what success means to yeah. you. So I know you had this kind of suburban idea of success, but then in your business, like, I think that you're an interesting case <laughs> they can just call you a case because yeah, i've been called worse <laughs> and i do think of myself as a case most of the time but um because i, I guess just in my own trying to understand like what does success mean to me I, I, there are sort of different elements there's like being kind of famous for what you're doing or being well known for what you're contributing then there's also like how much money you're ma making then there's what effect you're having and is that the desired effect that you want? You know, like, so there's all these things that I think people think of or like I always thought of as tied together and now I'm kind of like learning to separate them. Um, yeah, so I just... I think success, I think my definition, I think definitions of success comes a lot from what isn't healed. Mm. So <laughs> what's, what's really interesting is, and, and it's still a conflict for me to this day, is my definition of success is making a steady income mm -hmm. like my dad did when he was working for corporate right. and making sure I have life security and retirement money. Mm -hmm. That for me feels like successful. I can be accomplishing great books and or great work in organizations and I can be called and paid lots of money on a periodic basis, but if my business costs are more than what I'm bringing in, and so we're breaking even or losing a little bit or gaining just a little bit, whatever that is, and it's not matching, I don't feel successful. Mm -hmm. And Even though you're having the impact that you would want to have because correct. people are having great success from what you're offering. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, but again, that goes to where my where my vulnerability is. Mm -hmm. you know. And I grew up with, you know, my first 10 years were so like so filled with stressful family conversations around making ends meet mm -hmm. and that always being the conversation yeah. that I think in some ways that's kind of embedded. And then when my dad worked for McDonnell Douglas, that got resolved for the most part. Mm -hmm. So for me, that steadiness is what, you know, even though I, I think there's a part of me that always likes being an entrepreneur and, you know, doing things in my own time, in my own way, and being willing to work hard about it, success still feels to me more like, do I have enough income on a steady basis that I don't have to worry about making ends meet? Mm -hmm. And even though my, my, 
my status of living is so far above what my parents would have had. Like, they would never even dreamed of where I'm living or the kind of car I'm driving or any of that from, from that. Because <laughs> it didn't exist. <laughs> well, probably because it didn't exist. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. But, I mean, you know, or the places I've gone yeah. for work. Yeah. Like, I've gone to get paid, not yeah. gone on vacation. Mm-hmm would blow their minds, yeah. um, none of that feels successful to me if I'm not making my end. Right, you, know, you have that if one I have to steal, thing. I have that one thing. If I don't, you know, if I don't feel absolutely secure in my income, then I don't feel successful. Now, I'm having to get over that. I mean, that's where my work is. Yeah. Like, I have to appreciate more of that, the, the value that I'm providing, the service I'm providing and not be so caught up in the right. my success is, is the it's money I create. Yeah. Like I said at the beginning, this is only the first part of my conversation with my dad about work. While I knew bits and pieces of the story he told, most of it was new to me, especially the part about school and education. It gives me some perspective. He started teaching drums when he was 15. He had a skill that was easily transferable to paid work early on in life, which I didn't have. He was a teacher and he knew he was a teacher and he was good at teaching and students wanted to be taught by him. So clearly we've had different paths and maybe it's no use trying to find similarity in them. It makes me realize just how completely different we are, how different all people are and how useless it is to compare. The other thing that struck me was my dad's idea of success, a suburban life, owning a house, being a school teacher with a steady income and benefits and vacation time. That's not my idea of success at all. My idea of success is closer to the life that he actually lives. And interestingly, his idea of success is modeled after the life that his dad lived once he got a corporate job. I keep thinking about the life he described, a small life, as he put it. Not only is that not my idea of success, it's pretty much my idea of failure. No offense to anyone who lives that life. I believe it could be great for many people, but it's just a life that I think I would hate to live. And it's a life I've never wanted. I was born into suburbia and I was desperate and quick to escape it. But while my dad and I have different ideas of what a successful life looks like, we do share one thing in common, which is that we've both let money and notoriety dictate how successful we've felt. The whole thing is fascinating and we'll talk more about it next week, this time with my dad's wife, Camille Samuel. Until then, thanks for listening. And if you like my podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening. 